welcome this third Sunday of the season of Lent. As we come to the Lord's table today, as we focus on the Lord's Prayer, our third visit back to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, as we hear the words of Jesus to us, to guide us into praise, the Lord's Prayer, as we have found already, embraces in its tremendous scope the greatest things and the smallest things, from the coming of His kingdom, from every power relationship of our world, into our ration of daily bread. We recognize all the great and small, all the spiritual and material, all the inward and outward, everything that encompasses the human condition you have given to us in this prayer. You welcome us into your presence. It can be said by the cradle, it can be said by the grave. It can be said in great cathedrals and in the lowest ghettos. It can be spoken at weddings or at a deathbed. We have read already when Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have come now through this time where Jesus tells us to honor God, to give him his glory. And now we come to where Jesus turns to our needs and our petitions in the prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The first petitions of the prayer have focused on God and his glory. And that's always the pattern for our prayer. Even when we're not saying these specific words, we follow that pattern of coming into his presence, recognizing his glory, giving him the praise that is due his name. Later in the chapter, Jesus will reemphasize that direction in our lives. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. We don't rush into his presence asking for our needs. We come quietly into his presence, expecting to be in his presence, to seek his face and the fullness of his glory. And so the great unity in the prayer now comes to our needs. And as we bring these three petitions of our needs, we talk for bread and forgiveness and help in the midst of temptation, it brings every part of our humanity into the prayer. The pray for bread is the trusting of God for our present situation. We pray forgiveness, which brings our past into the presence of God. We pray for help in the midst of temptation, which brings our future to God. We focus on bread, and it thinks we think about sustaining our, our lives, and we think of our caring and providing Father. We think of forgiveness, and it turns our thoughts to Jesus and his cross, where he has made that forgiveness possible. And we pray for help in the middle of temptation. And it reminds us that he has given us his Holy Spirit to guide us in the midst of that temptation. And so the Lord's Prayer in these petitions brings our complete life into the fullness of God. Our past, present, and future into the fullness of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Jesus has fashioned for us this prayer that he taught us to pray. Now, if the Lord's Prayer were not so familiar to us, the prayer for daily bread would be shocking. After speaking of the greatness of God, how demeaning it seems to us to talk about filling our stomachs with food. And yet we're reminded that God gave us this prayer. 
He is the one who taught us to pray. We are not dragging him down from his glory, but rather we're reminded that he is the one that meets our daily needs. And so we pray that he would give us our daily bread. God realizes that it is the little things like daily bread that occupy the biggest part of our lives. It would be nice to think that our greatest concerns are to sit around and contemplate the great philosophical and spiritual truths of the universe. But sometimes those discussions can be drowned out by our growling stomachs. We recognize the need of our physical bodies. Remember, in the midst of Jesus' temptation, after his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, this is the first temptation that Satan brings to him. Turn these stones into bread. His physical needs were the temptation that Satan brought before the spiritual needs. And so we recognize that Satan will attack us at the level of the physical quite often. It is the focus of our outreach, of our missions, of our witnessing. So often, before we can share the gospel with people, we need to meet their physical needs, be that with food or medicine. We recognize the need to reach out to the bodies as well as the souls of men. Now, if Jesus would have forbidden us to bring such trivial things before him in prayer, most of our life would be fatherless. We would be as orphans, only coming when we're at our very best. But God welcomes us at our worst, at our weakest, at our greatest point of need. And so we thank God that he accepts us just as we are. People with great dreams and ideas, perhaps, but also with many small needs and desires that God knows about fully. Our hungers and our fears that none of us rise above. And so he whose arms enfold nations and worlds and all of his creation occupies himself with the small things of our lives. If it matters to you, it matters to him. It's our rule in prayer. And so when Jesus gives us this model prayer, he reminds us that God cares about those small things of our lives. He cared about the weariness of his disciples. He cared about the hunger of his listeners. Why did he care about those little things? Because sometimes it is the little things that keep us from God. He calls us to bring everything into his presence. Esau sold his birthright for some great spiritual thing. No, for a bowl of stew. We recognize that we can be derailed by the physical of this world. And so there's nothing too small to bring to God. And in this petition, as we come to our needs in the prayer, he reminds us of that. He reminds us how much he cares for us. And so what do we say behind this prayer for daily bread? We say that we are body as well as spirits. We recognize that God cares for our physical needs. It also teaches us that God trains us to live one day at a time in thankfulness. It was the same lesson they were to learn in the wilderness as the Hebrew children were wandering for those years. And God provided manna for them to eat each day. And if they tried to store up enough for two days, it would go rotten. Except for the Sabbath, when then you could gather for two days. You see, God controlled the nature of this manna that he was giving. But he gave it every day. Not a weekly supply, gather it up and then come back again next week. But every day we are to come to him. And so this part of the prayer reminds us that we are in God's presence every day. Not just as we gather together on Sunday, 
but as we are with him each day. And we are together each day when we pray this prayer individually. For it is we and us and our, we are together with each other as we pray the Lord's Prayer. He taught them to depend upon him. What if my wife and I would have sat our kids down when they were about to enter kindergarten and say, well, we've decided we want to pay you an allowance from now until uh, you grow up. And and so we've calculated what that would be. And here we're going to give you $5,000. First of all, we wouldn't have been able to find $5,000. But secondly, they would have never been able to handle that concept. The reason to give them that allowance is so that little by little they would learn responsibility. And day after day they would recognize their dependence on family and what it means to be a part of that family and how God blesses us. And so God gives to us not all the blessings in one lump sum, but daily because we thrive on the relationship of what it means to be with him. He give, it gives, when we pray this prayer, God's proper place. We thank him. It's why we bow our heads before our meals, to thank him for the bounty that he has provided in our lives. There's an old Jimmy Stewart movie that is set in the time of the Civil War in the southern community. It's called Shenandoah, and he's the, the patriarch of this plantation. And it shows this horrible prayer that he prays. Head of the table, reluctantly leads the family in prayer, and he says... Well, thank you for the food, even though we're the ones who planted it. We're the ones who plowed the ground. We're the ones who watered it and harvested it. We did it all ourselves, but thanks anyway for the food. Completely unaware that God is the one who provides the miracle of growth. That God is the one who supplies our need. That God is the one who recognizes our physical needs. Also, we pray for daily bread. The simplest of things. We pray not for the luxuries of life, but for the necessities of life. Because our happiness is a product of appreciation. We appreciate what God has given to us. And recognize also the needs around our world. We talked about this last week. It tells us that we are in partnership with God. We don't pray for our daily bread and then wait for that daily bread to fall from heaven as it did in the wilderness. God says he cares for the birds, but he doesn't drop the worms into the nest. They go out and find them. And so he says, we thank you for our daily bread. And then we work to provide that bread as God enables us to do so. There was a man who had a piece of ground and he cleared it and cleared off the stones and the weeds and planted and cared for the soil and a yield of great vegetables and flowers. And a friend came walking by and said, well, it's amazing what you and God have done here. And man says, yeah, you should have seen it when God had it by himself. (laughs) We are partners with God. He provides the miracle of growth. And Jesus told about it in so many of his parables. And yet we are workers together with him for that harvest. And so God's bounty comes when we toil and cooperate with God and what it means to be a partner with God. And so prayer is like faith. Without works, it is dead. Without God, we can do nothing. But without our willingness, God can do nothing for us. And so we enter into this relationship in thankfulness. We have already entered in as we pray the opening phrases of the prayer of his glory, of his holiness, of his power. And recognize who he is. 
But this now tells us to keep in constant touch with him. Our daily bread. But it's also our daily bread. This is not a private prayer. It is not give me and even my family my daily bread. But every time I pray this, I realize my responsibility beyond my dining room table. I realize my responsibility to feed the world. My responsibility to provide for others. Grant us this day our daily bread. And so we reach out to feed the hungry. We reach out to care for the needs of those around us and realize it's God's bounty that enables us to do that and to pray that prayer. It's a prayer for all mankind. Perhaps the greatest message of this prayer is that we can trust God every day for our every need. We recognize that today, don't we? We will come to his table. We will share symbolically the provision of God in our hearts and lives for our physical strength and for our spiritual life as well. We can trust him because he listens to all of our needs. What if we had a father who only listened to our big problems and everything else was too much minutiae? We'd never be able to bring all of the daily things of our lives into the presence of God. But he invites us. It's his prayer. He gave us these words. Bring your physical needs into my presence. And, and what is the greater miracle? The creation that we see all around us or that the creator loves us and enters into our lives. And so talking with God about little things does not belittle him, but it transforms those trivial things into things of great meaning, into illustrations of his love. And so we learn to trust instead of to calculate. We learn to come to him daily. And we must trust him for every day's provision. In Romans chapter 8 it says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ Freely give us all things. He has given us the very best. What makes us think he would withhold the small things? Seek first his kingdom and he will care for the rest. So we pray for this daily bread. But then we move from provision for our physical needs to forgiveness of our sins. He invites us to pray these petitions. And so we move on and say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, depending on the tradition in which you have worshipped most of your life, you will say debts and debtors or sin and sins or transgressions and those who have transgressed against us. It's all focused on this sin of our lives. The people to whom I owe debts do not allow me to forget about that. I get these bills in the mail all the time. That you are a debtor. Well, this reminds us that we are debtors to God for what he has given to us. A debt we can never repay, but we recognize the thankfulness of that debt that has been forgiven. Our world tries to sweep sin under the carpet or pretend it doesn't exist or define it so that it does not include them. But the word says all have sins. You turn over to Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All have sinned. It doesn't say some have sinned. We are in that category. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, when we talk about sin, we focus down in Matthew to those verses just after this version of the prayer. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so we recognize he's talking about that which he has forgiven. Now, in the word, there are five different words from the original language that are translated sin in English. And so we have all kinds of categories which this covers. The first word is one that was a a shooting term for missing the target, falling short of the best, failure in what we might have been. Now, you can miss the target because you're a poor shot or because you're aiming for the wrong target. But either way, these sins of omission are part of our sinful life. And we say, forgive us. The next word they had for sin was stepping across, crossing a line between right and wrong, between honesty and dishonesty, between kindness and selfishness. And for that, we say, forgive us. The next word for sin was slipping across. It is when you lose your balance. You don't expect to fall, but you fall. This black ice. We spent a decade of our ministry in the winters of Colorado. And it's not an uncommon thing to be walking along and before you know it, you're on your backside because you've slipped on what didn't look like ice at all. In our spiritual walk, there are sins that surprise us. Like slipping on an icy surface. We can't anticipate them. It's not deliberate. It's a momentary loss of control. And we say, forgive us. The next one is a tougher one. It's the word for lawlessness or rebellion. The word that Susanna Wesley gave to her son, John Wesley. Sin is a willful transgression of the known law of God by a morally responsible person. The sin of lawlessness, of turning our back upon God, of knowing the right thing and choosing to do the wrong. And we say, forgive us. The fifth word is the one we see here, debt. Failure to pay that which is due. Failure in our duty. And we say, forgive us. Sin is a universal problem. Corporate sin and individual sin. We recognize that we are sinners. We recognize that we are born into that life of sinfulness. That we need his saving grace. That we need the purification of his Holy Spirit to live in this life. And the word says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we pair that together with chapter 6. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Let's turn over there a few pages in Romans. Starting in verse 18 in chapter 6. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. 
What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. And then the verse we so often quote, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We were slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. We recognize the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus, as his grace is greater than our sin. And so even if it was just the sins of omission, the debt is great. All the things we could have done, but have not. It means helping. It means seeing the need. Jesus in Matthew 25 said, There were times when I was hungry and naked and in prison and you did not help. And they say, no, Lord, we'd have helped. When was that happened? He said, inasmuch as you do not do it for the least of these, you do not do it to me. There's a negative and a positive to this. We need to recognize the needs around us. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. What was the sin of the rich man? He didn't kick Lazarus whenever he left or he passed him by. Didn't chase him off. He just ignored him. We need to see the needs around us and recognize what we can contribute to those needs. That our lives must not be too crowded to see the needs of those around us. And so he tells us about this need for forgiveness of our sins. Jesus can love people through us and he suffers with every hurt. So with all of these different ways that we can become debtors, it's natural that the longer we live, the greater our debt grows. If we have not asked for forgiveness of these sins, the debt grows each and every day. And it's one more day to repent of, and it's one fewer day to repent in. We recognize the need to repent now. Now is the day of salvation. He keeps calling us to the urgency of this call. God's grace grows greater. Paul's message throughout the Roman letter, grace greater than our sin. The sin was massive and and led to Jesus' death. And the wages of that sin should be death. We deserve death. And yet his gift to us in Jesus Christ is forgiveness. Not only do we need to understand the sin, but we need to understand our responsibility. And then we will realize what we are praying. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The literal meaning is forgive us in the manner that we forgive. There are times when if we're truly aware of this prayer, it's a frightful thing to pray it. For if we're holding a grudge against someone, if we're hating someone, if we're actually not forgiving someone, we're... Asking him not to forgive us. Or saying, forgive us as we have forgiven our brother. Remember Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servants. The disciples had said, how often should we forgive? And Peter thought he was being pretty generous when he said up to seven times. Jesus said, there's no end to this. Seventy times seven. He told the parable of this unmerciful servant who had been forgiven the equivalent of ten million dollars. And then begrudged his fellow servants a $20 debt. Our forgiveness is so great. It cannot be compared 
to the things of this world. But if we cannot forgive others these trivial things, then we're asking God not to forgive us. Said that Leonardo da Vinci, when he was painting the Lord's Supper, had painted the faces, the face of one of his enemies on the person of Judas in the painting. He was struggling then to see and visualize the face of Christ, which would be perfect for his painting. And he could not come to a vision of the face of Christ. Finally, he was under conviction. And he painted over the face he had painted for Judas and painted it a neutral face. And that night in a dream, the face of Christ came to him. We are forgiven in the same measure that we give forgiveness. In Ephesians 4, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. If we can see the immensity of his love and forgiveness, which we'll see at his table in just a few moments, how could we possibly not forgive others? God has done so much. Later in the sermon, he would say, how can you say I'm going to take the speck out of my brother's eye when there's a log in my own eye? He said, you hypocrite, first take care of your own needs before you can help others. Recognize our responsibility. And so we can't possibly forgive in proportion of what God has forgiven us. But we can respond to his forgiveness. For change is not a prerequisite of this forgiveness, but the amount of change shows the understanding that we have of his forgiveness and what it means that he has given so much for us. And so we do not forgive lightly. When Jesus forgave us, it cost him what we look at at the cross. And when we forgive someone, we take on the hurt that enables that forgiveness. But God forgives, so we also must forgive. Forgiveness is love and understanding. And as we come to Jesus' table today, on this third Sunday of Lent and Communion Sunday, what a time to understand the depth of this meaning. As we look in the prayer this week, he invites us to pray for our daily breads. And he invites us to pray for forgiveness. But that forgiveness depends upon our response. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We tie the hands of God in forgiveness if we fail to have a forgiving heart. So as we come to the Lord's table, as we think of his broken body, of his shed blood, of his grace, we want to come with an attitude that is so grateful that we will overflow with thanksgiving to him and demonstrate that thanksgiving with forgiveness of others. To live with a forgiving heart. It's God's plan for us. It's his prayer for us that we would live in this way. If you have gathered the elements, pray with us and prepare to receive this great gift of Jesus Christ. Father, we come this third Sunday of Lent with an awareness of your great grace. And we sit at the table 
You serve us. You break the bread. You pray the prayer. You say, this is my body. And Father, we gratefully receive it. We thank you for what you have done for us. And we pray that we'd have a renewed vision today of the responsibility that comes with this knowledge. That if we have received your forgiveness, we are called to forgive others as well. The word says, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. And then there in the upper room, it says, after the supper, he also took the cup. and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, you proclaim my death until I come again. So today, we make a, a direct observation that we are proclaiming God's grace until he comes again. If it's this Lenten season, wouldn't it be great to have the heavens open and to rejoin with him in glory. We proclaim his death until he comes. Take and drink in remembrance of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice this day in what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We focus on this prayer that you give to us, this pattern of prayer that teaches us so much about you and so much about ourselves. We glorify you, but we also recognize our physical needs. We also recognize our need for forgiveness, for your grace is what saves us. By grace, we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves, so that no one can boast. Father, we thank you for that grace. We live in the midst of that grace. And we rejoice in your presence. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord this day. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Have a great day.